You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, we had Adam Olson, as always, and a special guest, Jason Larkin, in to talk about segment reporting. Jason brings 13 years of Big Four experience where he helped a variety of clients with IPOs, among other technical accounting issues and standard adoptions, so he's the right guy to have in the room for this conversation. Segment reporting is one of those hurdles a private company has to jump before going public, and then there's that ongoing maintenance and evaluation once you're on the other side. So this is a super relevant topic uh, for anybody looking to IPO or even for public companies um, who just have to maintain this. So we'll cover this topic today from a high level, but if you'd like to learn more about this, you can connect with us on LinkedIn, look up Embark, and we always try and create content that's relevant for people in the accounting world. So as always, we hope you enjoy this episode and learn something new. All right, this is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's national quality leader, and special guest, Jason Larkin, a managing director here in Dallas. How are you guys? Great. Doing great, Sarah. How are you? Good. Good to be back. Excited to cover (laughs) our little friend of public filers, segment reporting. We've got a lot to cover, so let's jump in and start with an overview and the purpose of segment reporting. Adam, will you kick us off? Sure. Yeah. So uh, segment reporting, you know, the guidance is outlined in ASC 280 and it's, you know, it provides the framework and all the requirements that we need to follow. Um, but largely the standard is really designed um, to provide insight into how management views the business for the users of the financial statements. So the financial statements themselves are obviously showing the results of the operations, but this takes it a step further and, and really gives insight into how management views it. And so when I really try to think about the standard and the kind of the objectives of the standard, I you know three things come to mind for me. Mm-hmm. You know, one is, like I said, it's just providing that disaggregation into how management sees it so the users can understand future prospects of the business. Um, But it also provides some entity-wide information that's useful. So things about like products and, you know, services revenues, you know, who are their major customers, where are their large geographical locations that they operate or sell their products. And it really allows users to just make more informed judgments. The last thing I'd like to kind of finish with the overview of like segment reporting is that it really is just a disclosure matter. It doesn't change anything in your in your typical accounting and your financial statements. Um, it really goes into the footnotes itself and just provides that additional clarity. Okay, so what is the scope of segment reporting? So who should actually be concerned with this? Yeah, so you kind of alluded to it in the in the opening here. It really is a standard that is required only for um, public entities. Um, so, you know, private companies and certain not-for-profit entities don't have to apply the requirements of ASC 280, um, but they could. You know, there is a voluntary option. I would say 99.9% of private companies <laughs> probably are not taking that voluntary, let's do a little bit more work in yeah. our you know, financial statements, but they could. Um, just keep in mind, if, if a private company wishes to start including segment information, they have to comply with the whole standard as it's written. They can't just kind of pick and choose what they like. Okay. Um, one other thing I'd probably mention, though, um, is there are a lot of like private companies in today's market. You know, we're seeing a lot of capital market transactions, you know, IPOs coming up, SPAC transactions for sure. So if you are a private company that's potentially heading down one of those paths, um, you are going to be required to include the segment reporting information in any of your your filings. So it's something you need to probably already start thinking about. You know, keep that in mind. And then for those 
private companies that, you know, we're not going down the IPO path. We're not going down the SPAC path. You know, we don't see that in our future. We don't want to like run you guys off from this podcast if you just tuned in. Um, but there is some valuable information that does actually come out of the segment reporting framework um, that's useful for those companies that might have goodwill that they aren't amortizing. So we'll cover that a little bit later. Okay, so it's most relevant to private or public companies, but it's relevant to everybody. Sure. Yeah. Jason, will you start us off by giving a little bit of the framework? And kind of the steps to follow as you're applying this? Yeah, for sure. So I think, and to piggyback on Adam's sort of th three ideas and three themes, there's really three steps that I think about whenever, you know, companies are going through the segment analysis. The first is determining who that chief operating decision maker is. And we'll get into that a little bit for a little bit more. But step one is who is our chief operating decision maker? We'll refer to that as CODM um, on and off throughout the podcast, but that's really key. And then it's identifying what are those operating segments going through the guidance and the framework in 280 and understanding what are operating segments. And then the third is, are there any of those operating segments that meet the aggregation criteria that we would then aggregate into reportable segments, which is what we actually see in the footnotes for the public companies. So those are the three steps that I always think about, Sarah. Okay, so let's dive into each one of those a little bit deeper. As with anything in accounting, it sounds like there's a lot of judgment. <laughs> yep. So let's start with the CODM. Sounds like there's probably some judgment there. Can you give us an overview of what that actually represents and how you would determine Yep, for is. sure. Yeah, so CODM is much more of a function than an individual. Sometimes it can be your CEO. That's what we see with a lot of companies, but that's not always the case. So it's really thinking about who is the individual or the, or the group of individuals that are making the key operating decisions about the organization. And what does that mean, right? So some of the indicators that, that you can look to as a company to determine who the CODM is, or if it's a, a function is, who's approving the budget, who's making decisions, key decisions about hiring and firing of those executives. You think about moving into new markets, significant capital expenditures, those types of things and understanding who's the one that's really making those decisions. Um, sometimes we do see that ultimately being the COO, the chief operating officer, as opposed to the CEO, but each company's unique and different. And so it's really understanding your company, your organization, and what are those key operating decisions that need to be made. Okay, so that's step one. And then step two was determining what is an operating segment? What does that kind of look like? Perfect. So we'll we'll hit on three again because that's the, the common <laughs> theme. It's easy to think about it in threes, at least for me it is. So when we think about what is an operating segment, first is what are the business, it engages in business activities, right? So it generates revenue and engages in business activities. So that's really step one. Then step two is the operating results are reviewed by the CODM to allocate resources and assess performance. And that's one that there, there's obviously a lot of gray and judgment with respect to that, but that's a key um, factor. And then there's discrete financial information that's actually available. Um, those are the three, three steps that I always think about. So let's dive a little bit more into that operating results are regularly reviewed. I imagine there's a lot of review, a lot that that function is performing. So how would they determine which ones fall into that category of regularly reviewed? Yeah, and it's a great question. And I think what I have seen with a lot of companies is the ability to pull data, provide data, it just becomes easier and easier every day. And so it is important to think about when, when you're really looking at that question that the guidance asks, it's what are those key operating metrics that, that are actually used to make decisions? You know, whether it's 
EBITDA or cash, operating cash flows, gross profit. It, it's really thinking about as an organization, what are those key operating metrics that we're using to make decisions? You may be getting, you know, as the CODM, a variety of information. It's understanding what are, what, what are you actually using to make those decisions? And that's those key operating me- metrics. And then when we think about regularly reviewed, there's not a bright line or a specific, it needs to be reviewed every month. Um, general practice that, that we see is each quarter, right? It, it's sort of reviewed as part of your quarterly reporting, especially thinking about this in the context of public company reporting. You've got your quarterly reporting that you have to do. Typically it's reviewed on a quarterly basis. Okay. And we touched on the concept of business activities earlier, and I'm gonna to toss this question over to Adam because I know ASC 805 is your favorite. <laughs> so should a company think about this concept of business activities as defined by ASC 805 or something else? Yeah, so obviously like ASC 805 has like the definition of a business, which you know could be used as a guideline, but it's not generally required to be used when you're applying the guidance in um, the segment reporting standard. So the segment reporting standard was like purposeful when it said we're going to use the term business activities. And that's because Mm -hmm. why most operating segments are going to generate revenues and incur some expenses. They don't have to actually generate revenues to be an operating segment. So if you think about like a startup type segment or a pre-revenue type company, those could still be operating segments if the only activity they're actually incurring is just I mean, only business activity they're incurring is just expenses. Um, So something to keep in mind that like revenue is generally present, but it doesn't have to be. And lastly, Jason touched on discrete financial information. What needs to be available to meet this part of the guidance? Are there any required metrics that need to be included to qualify as discrete financial information? Yeah, it just it really just has to be sufficient enough so that CODM can make their decisions. They can determine how they want to allocate those resources um, to the different you know operating segments. So just really trying to understand is there enough information there? You know, he kind of touched on it already. Like, you know, if you went back many many years ago when the standard first came about, like a lot of times the CODM was just given this one historical package and everything was all you know bottled up nicely and stapled together, and they're looking at this package and that's how what they use as their information. But as we've gotten into like more dynamic environments or a data driven you yeah. know business world these days, information is coming likely to those CODMs from all places at all types you know times during the year, and so it's really trying to aggregate and understand what are they using, is it mm-hmm. sufficient to meet that discrete financial information requirement? Okay, and so we did a deep dive. Now let's pull back a little bit and kind of cover this at a broader angle. Is it possible for a company to only have one operating segment, or is there a maximum as well like is there any limit to the top side so the answer is yes to the first question (laughs) it is possible to have one operating segment it's probably not as common but it's definitely a possibility especially if you're maybe one of those kind of like startup pre-revenue companies the business may not be that large it is something that the sec kind of keeps in mind when they see a company say hey we've got one you know one operating segment because that's probably going to be it's the business itself so there's (laughs) they're reporting the whole business Um, just to make sure that that conclusion is correct and that management really isn't looking at things a little bit deeper but not giving insight into that. Um, But it also could be the case where there are multiple operating segments that are identified and, um, you know, Jason kind of alluded to this in, you know, his three steps when he's walking through. One of those steps is aggregation. So maybe you had multiple operating segments, but you walk through the criteria, which I know we'll cover in a bit, 
to aggregate those, so you ended up with just one. Um, so it isn't something that isn't impossible, but you know, it's it's probably not as common. Um, and then on the upper end of the boundary, I mean, there is no limit. <laughs> the limit does not exist. Right, the limit does not exist, but it really comes down to, again, that information that's provided to the CODM. So the level of disaggregation that's in there, you know, so long as it meets all the criteria for the operating segment, you know, each of those could be an operating segment. And that's going to vary entity to entity, right? Because it's, it's really how that person is viewing the business. So there's no consistency necessarily between even people in similar industries or competitors or things mm -hmm. like that. What about a corporate location or headquarters? Are those ever considered operating segments? Um, I would say generally no. And it's really just because, you know, they don't meet that business activity kind of criteria. Mm -hmm. You know, usually a corporate headquarters doesn't have the ability to ever generate revenue. So, you know, absent that, that you know, ability, it's, it's usually not going to be an operating segment. Okay, and Jason, I'm gonna kick this one back to you. We've talked a little bit about aggregating segments. Does the guidance permit or require an entity to do this? Technically, no. I mean, if you wanted to not look at the aggregation criteria and just have all of your operating segments as your reportable segments, you certainly could do that. But again, going back to you know what's beneficial to the users of the financials and thinking about do you as an organization really want to have all of those discrete operating segments disclosed historically, um, go through all of the processes to prepare those and, and all of that. So um, there's no requirement, but a lot of companies do at least evaluate that and determine is there a way um, that they can meet that aggregation criteria. Okay, so let's say an entity thinks they should aggregate their operating segments. What's kind of the next steps and the requirements there? Yep. So we're gonna do threes again, and this is the way the guidance is written. This isn't just my view on, on life in, in threes, but um, it does work out well. Yeah. So there's really three things to think about when you're thinking about aggregating operating segments. So the first is it really needs to align with the structure of 280 in terms of how the company is looking at the business and what's beneficial to the users of financial information. So there's this, this general framework that you've really got to align with how you think about 280 when you're looking at aggregating the criteria. Then the other two are a little bit more concrete um, requirements that you have to look at. The first is, do the operating segments have similar economic characteristics? And then the second um, or third criteria, I should say, is are there similar, similar qualitative characteristics? And there's five specific characteristics that you have to evaluate from a qualitative perspective. It's the nature of products and services, the nature of the production process, types of customers, the method of distribution or how you're gonna provide the service, and then the environment that they operate in. So just to summarize, you gotta, you know, in line with 280, you've gotta have that similar economic characteristics and you gotta have that qualitative characteristics that are laid out in the guidance. So as with a lot of accounting standards, there's some vague words in there. Uh, similar economic characteristics. Can you tease that out a little bit, what that means? I don't know how that's not black and white, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so similar economic characteristics, it, it, it really is somewhat judgment-based. Um, you have to think about what are, first going back to, what are those economic characteristics that I'm even gonna look at? So you think about, you know, we go back to the conversation we had on what metrics are the CODM looking at, whether it's, EBITDA or, or other metrics and really understanding what are those metrics and then looking at those and comparing them across the different operating segments 
and thinking about what is the, the percentage that they're alike or different. And a, a general rule of thumb is thinking about it, um, if they're less than 10% different between the different operating segments, that's usually a very good indicator that, that you may be able to meet this criteria. It's not a black and white. So as with you know similar areas in the guidance, as you approach that 10%, you know, the, the burden of proof, if you will, becomes higher to, to prove out why you're going to aggregate those. If it's 1% or 2% different, um, you may not need to have as much evidence or proof. But that's sort of the framework when we think about similar economic characteristics and how a company should evaluate it. And is there a requirement to reassess these conclusions about aggregation? Yeah, so at least annually as an organization, you need to be looking at that and, and reassessing. What I would say is there's a couple of factors that would drive you to maybe do that more frequently. One is if there's big changes in the business, right? So you had an acquisition, had a divestiture, changed org structure, any type of those significant events I think would drive a need to reevaluate. The other area that I think um, companies often will reevaluate, depending upon that threshold that we talked about on the similar economic characteristics, you know, if you're at a, a pretty high percentage relative already, that may be something that you want to monitor more frequently so that you don't get to the end of the year and all of a sudden the percentages is much different in terms of the two operating segments. So general framework of at least annually, but it's, it's good to keep your eye on it and have a process in place that you're monitoring that on an ongoing basis. Okay, so we've identified our operating segments. We've assessed them for aggregation. Next up is determining an entity's reportable segments. So Adam, can you give us an overview of that framework? Yeah, and so this is where the disclosure, you know, premise comes in, it's like, what are you actually going to report out that needs mm -hmm. to be showed to the users of the financial statements? So, you know, we've talked a lot about how you identify those operating segments. That doesn't mean that all the ones you identify are actually going to be reported. So that's where this reportable framework comes in. And so the guidance really lays out again, another three here. Um, <laughs> that's the theme of today's episode. It is, it is. So there's three quantitative tests that you, you generally perform to determine whether an operating segment is going to become that reportable segment. And it's a revenue test, you've got a profit test, and you've got an asset test. And so the tests are, you know, basically a measurement. So it's, you know, looking at whether or not you exceed a certain threshold. They're all 10% thresholds. So for the revenue test, it's whether any um, operating segments revenue is greater than 10% of the combined revenues of all the operating segments. Uh, the P&L test is another 10% test. Um, it's whether the combined profit for all the at profit segments or the 10% of all the combined losses for all the at loss um, operating segments is greater than either the greater of, I say the combined operating segments, profit or loss. So that one's a little bit of a mouthful there. <laughs> it's wordy. <laughs> um, and then the asset test is really just operating segment assets, whether it's greater than 10% of the combined assets of all the operating segments. So if any of those tests are met um, for an operating segment, it's gonna be a reportable segment. Um, keep in mind though that management could determine like, you know, maybe they've got an operating segment that doesn't trigger any of those, but they think, you know, maybe qualitatively it's really material, maybe it's going to, it's a growing part of the business or it's something that's really important that they want to still call out. They can still make another um, operating segment, a reportable segment at their discretion, um, but probably just disclose that as well, why they chose to do that. So where do all of those amounts come from when you're computing those tests? Is it the financial statements or something else? Yeah, this is one thing to probably clarify here is that 
the amounts used to do those tests don't come from like the consolidated financial statements. So I was real purposeful when I used the word combined, I wasn't saying consolidated revenues or consolidated assets. So it's really based on what's the information that's given to that CODM and all those, mm -hmm. those packages or those reports or whatever he, he or she uses to make those decisions. Um, you use the metrics in there to, to perform those tests. So whatever segment revenues are reported for those operating segments, you're going to use those revenue amounts divided by the total of all those operating segment revenues, et cetera. So just make sure that, you know, you're not trying to pull things from like a consolidating, you know, financial statement report. It really needs to come from that CODM package. And, and a lot of times those amounts may be non-GAAP as well. So like, you know, there may be EBITDA metrics or things like there, that that are in there that are used. And so what the requirements and the disclosures or the requirements and the guidance has about the disclosures is there has to be a reconciliation disclosure that's included. And that basically is taking some of those non-GAAP amounts and reconciling them back to amounts in the financial statement so people can un kind of understand, like, how does this actually fit into what's on the face of the financials? So practically speaking, let's say I have two operating segments. The first one passes the revenue test. The second one doesn't, but they passed the asset test. Are those still both considered reportable segments? How does that actually look in practice? Yeah, so they don't all have to meet like one test or another test. Like if if you know operating segment A meets the revenue test, it's going to be a reportable segment. If operating segment B meets the asset test, it's going to be a reportable segment. So it kind of just depends. Um, the only you know, kind of thing to think about here, and this is really true for kind of the profit test, is that you want to use kind of a, a single measure of performing that test. So you want to pick a measure that's most commonly seen across all the operating segments. So if it's operating income is provided, or if it's pre-tax net income, you just want to make sure when you're performing that for profit test, you're using the same measure for all the different operating segments. Because um, there also may be cases where like for the asset test that asset information isn't even given to the CODM. So like it's not going to be, you know, it's a mute point. You don't perform that test if the information's not given, or maybe it's only given for certain segments. And so mm -hmm. you only perform it obviously on the ones that actually have the information. Uh, what about for the revenue test? What gets included in that amount? Yeah. So we mentioned it's going to be what comes from that CODM package. Um, so whatever those revenue amounts are. So it could also include internal revenues. Like if you think about a consolidated revenue number, all those internal things are going to eliminate. But from you know a segment reporting perspective, you include all internal and external revenue amounts that get reported. Um, and then it's going to be the same for the combined revenue amount for all those operating segments, internal or external revenues. And you know if you tr trip that 10%, then that operating segment will be a reportable segment. So kind of keep in mind that that total combined number isn't going to match your consolidated revenue. And then we touched on this, but just to make sure we have it very clear, the profit and loss test, <laughs> does that mean net income or can another measure of profitability be used? Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be net income. Again, you're kind of looking for that commonality between all the different operating segments. Like what's a measure I can use that I can equally apply across all my operating segments? So, for example, if operating segment A, it got, you know, it reports, you know, all revenue expenses amounts all the way down to operating income, mm -hmm. but operating segment B takes it all the way down to pre-tax net income. 
you know, your measure for performing that test couldn't be pre-tax net income because operating segment A doesn't have that information. So what you would use by default to say, well, to get to pre-tax net income, you had to also get the operating income. So we're going to use operating income for both A and B to do that test. So just kind of looking at that, but it also could be a non-GAAP measure like EBITDA is very common. So like if EBITDA is what you use, you're going to use EBITDA to, to measure that test. Okay. And then finally, the asset test, what goes into this amount? Yeah. So it's, I think when a lot of people think of assets, they're like, you know, is it going to be like reporting a full balance sheet? Um, and that isn't <laughs> always the case. Sometimes like the CODM may only get fixed assets for an operating segment or only accounts receivable balances or some other like specific asset or a couple of specific assets. So you just use what's provided to him or her. So it would, if it's just fixed assets, it's that fixed asset number divided by the total combined fixed asset number. If there's no asset information presented, you don't do the asset test. So you just kind of have to use what's available to you. Okay. So we do these tests on an annual basis or, you know, when you're reporting, I imagine there's some fluctuation there where maybe it qualified as an operating segment and now it's no longer. So what does that look like when it, it's an operating segment in a prior year and is no longer meeting that test? Yeah, and, and Jason touched on this a bit, like kind of when you might see this, so like you have a big acquisition or maybe you dispose mm -hmm. of a business and may change kind of like what gets presented to the CODM or maybe whoever the CODM is, is somebody new now, like there's a new CEO or COO or whoever that, who that, that role is assigned to, it changes. Um, or, you know, if you were aggregating things in the past, Maybe some of that aggregation stuff is no longer met, and so you don't aggregate them anymore. So there's lots of different reasons why it might change. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have an operating segment that historically was a reportable segment, but then in the current year it no longer meets that requirement, mm -hmm. you don't have to obviously report it. But you might want to think about whether or not that change this year, is it maybe driven by something that's temporary? Mm -hmm. um, if it is something that's viewed as temporary, you may still want to, you know, include that operating segment as a reportable segment, just so that you have that comparability going forward. Um, because if it becomes an operating segment later down the road, then you're going to have to recast your prior year segment reporting disclosures. So just something to keep in mind um, that there can be like, you know, temporary blips that might throw something out this year. But if it's if it's really viewed as something that's just not you know, it's not like a true like decline, like the segment's kind of going away, but maybe just, you know, a bad, a bad year, bad quarter, whatever, um, you know, keep that in mind. And what about the other way around? If it was a segment last year and now, or it was not, and now it is. Yeah, so if it wasn't in the past, you know, maybe it was something that was kind of growing and now all of a sudden it's become a larger part of the business. And now let's say it trips that revenue test the guidance requires you that you have to go back and basically revise the prior period segment reporting disclosures and include that that reportable segment for the prior periods so long that it's practical to do so you know obviously sometimes information can be really tough to get but generally i think almost everyone's able to pull the information together so I think trying to make that argument that we can't do it is, is pretty tough. <laughs> Especially given the qualifications for how to get a segment. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that information's probably available. All right, Jason, this one's All coming right. back to you. Perfect. It's an aggregation question. What does a company do with an operating segment that doesn't meet any of the tests by themselves? Oh. 
can they aggregate them into a reportable segment? Yeah, with all of that discussion that Adam just did on those tests, we should give him a break for, for a second, <laughs> for sure. So when we think about insignificant operating segments, there's a couple things that we can do that companies should really think about in terms of how they want to look at those. One is to combine those. So you think about looking at all of those different insignificant operating segments. Do they make meet that aggregation criteria? And if so, combine those. The second would be to think about putting all of those into a all other bucket. So we see this, sometimes companies take this approach where they have this other bucket where they will put all of the insignificant operating segments into that other bucket. The other thing that they, the company need to think about is the 75% test and making sure that there is 75% of the, the total revenues that are disclosed. And if that is not met, you may have to disclose some of those operating segments. So if you have a situation where you go through and you have a, a number of insignificant operating segments, but ultimately in total, they're more than 25%, you would need to ultimately disclose some of those um, insignificant operating segments, even if you felt like they weren't very significant to the, the operations. Can you dive in a little bit more to that 75% test? Like how is it measured and what happens if an entity falls short? Yeah, so it's 75% of the external revenues that are reported, and this is where it's important to you know, delineate between the combined and the consolidated, but you think about those external consolidated revenues that are disclosed, um, you need to be able to disclose, or the guidance requires you to disclose 75% of those. So when you look at the operating segments that ultimately you've got um, shown as reportable segments that are disaggregated in the footnotes, that needs to encompass 75%. If it doesn't, then I go back to you know your quote insignificant operating segment bucket. You'll need to go back and. Um, determine what other operating segments am I going to include as reportable segments to make sure that I have at least 75% of the revenues disclosed. And kind of going along with that, what if um, an operating segment doesn't meet any of the criteria for a reportable segment, but man, that's just management's favorite segment and they really <laughs> want to present it at their discretion. Or they just think it's like yeah. a segment that's you know, has a lot of potential in the yeah. future. Yeah. Can they do that at their discretion? Yep. Nobody's going to preclude you from adding more detail if you want. Normally companies like to avoid that, but if you're um, wanting to do that, like you said, uh, an area we see this sometimes companies that are moving into, let's say international, right? Or a new product line or brand or something where they want to make sure that they're providing that information. It may not be significant in the context of the full financials. They can still show that. So that way users of the financial information have that available for them, but not required. Yeah. And I would just add on like when you're, when you're short on that 75% test and you're trying to get over that threshold, and you're looking at like what hasn't been reported, you don't always have to default to the next largest operating segment to put out there. I mean, obviously you have to get over that 75% hurdle, but to your point, if there are other segments that maybe aren't the next biggest, but you know, management views are important because they're growing and they're gonna be a larger part of the business down the road, if those alone would get them over that 75% hurdle, that's acceptable to do. There's no like prescribed way of how you then have to like pick the next best one. Yep. All right. And what happens to the operating segments that are the last kid picked for the football team? <laughs> Nobody wants them. Yeah. Is there like a catch-all bucket that these go into? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly the right. honorable sir. mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're put in the other bucket. That's other. exactly right. Yeah. They're on so, the bench. <laughs> yep. You get, to, you get to go in that other bucket and you don't get called out separately, but you're, you're still on the team technically. So. Technically. <laughs> 
Jason, you mentioned at the top of the episode that the segment reporting guidance is really a disclosure matter. Yep. Can you give an overview of what's required? Yeah, so there's a couple different things from a disclosure perspective that are required. One is just general information about the segments themselves, you know, what is the, the type of business that they're in or the just the background of those segments, the reportable segments that you have. So you've got general information. Then the second component is information about profit and loss and the assets associated with those reportable segments. And so when we think about profit and loss, it may not be net income. It's really thinking about, again, going back to those metrics, how does management view the business? That's the whole point of this disclosure is to provide users with insight into how management views the business. So you think about those profit or loss metrics um, and asset metrics and disclosing those for each of the, the segments that are, that are available. And then the third is just um, reconciliations where you actually would reconcile those metrics back to, to gap metrics. And do these disclosures need to mirror others in the industry and be similar to their competitors? Yes, and I think Adam said it very well earlier. You know, there, while there may be situations where industries have similar ways that they organize the business, ultimately this is how, as a company, you view the business and how the CODM views the business. So just because you're in a retail um, you know, industry, that doesn't mean that every retailer has the exact same segment. It's really going through everything we just talked about, assessing you know, what are my operating segments and all the rest of that to get to your reportable segments. And you may end up in a different situation than some of your industry peers, and that's um, perfectly acceptable. Yeah, a lot of companies will you know, make the fault of saying like, well, they're only showing three segments. And like, I went through this guidance and I'm supposed to put, why should I have to put yeah. five segments and give more information about my business that competitors could see? <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. Like it, it's, you know, what is that CODM actually getting? How are they making their decisions, allocating resources? And if it's at a more disaggregated level, then, you know, that's what it is. That makes sense. Uh, Jason touched on the reconciliation process. Adam, could you kind of talk through how that reconciliation guidance applies and what that looks like? Yeah, so there is a reconciliation disclosure that you have to include as well. And it's really just to take the kind of like amounts that are disclosed um, for the reportable segments, because again, that's based on you know what's provided to management, but then somehow reconciling those amounts back to what's actually on the face of the financial statement. So amounts reported under GAAP. So for, you know, total revenues, it's going to go back to, you know, you know, consolidated revenues for whatever profit or loss metric is used, whether it's EBITDA or operating income, you're going to bring that back to like pre-tax net income for discontinued operations. And then, you know, assets as well, if you're only, you know, showing maybe, you know, accounts receivable or whatever for those reportable segments, how does that tie back to then total accounts receivable and the consolidated financial statements? Um, again, if there's no asset information, I think we've said this a few times, and obviously you don't need to reconcile back to assets, but you probably just want to disclose that the CODM doesn't use assets as part of its decision making. What causes the need for reconciling items from segment reporting to U.S. gap measures? Yeah, there can be a, a lot of different things. Um, you know, the most common are just differences in accounting policies that are applied for gap versus maybe what's used for internal reporting. Sometimes corporate allocations are made to the segments. So those would be included in the segment disclosures, but obviously from a gap perspective, like 
that stuff would all eliminate because it's just shared expenses. Unallocated amounts that maybe fall into that all other bucket that aren't going to be captured in that reportable segment total. You know, you're going to have to re reconcile that back. And then any type of like intercompany, intersegment type balances that, you know, just normally get eliminated in consolidation. Those are the most common things that we see. And what about entity-wide disclosures? What are these used for and what should a company keep in mind with those? It's an additional disclosure requirement. And this is one maybe to keep in mind if you were an entity that determined you only had one um, reportable segment. You know, obviously like all of your, you wouldn't have all the details of the reportable segment disclosures because it's just the business as a whole, but you still have to present the entity-wide information. Um, this is only done on an annual basis, so it's not something you have to worry about for your, your quarterly filings here, but it really just gives more information about the entity as a whole related to its revenue, its long-lived assets. Um, and this is regardless of whether the CODM actually uses any of this information. So this is kind of like a overarching, just catch-all, just here's some additional insight into, into the company as a whole. Um, so the entity-wide information is really kind of broken down into a few areas. So you have to give entity-wide information about all the products and services of the company. So revenues generated from external customers for each of those um, you know, products or services. You can group similar products and services together. You kind of have to use some judgment there. Um, there's also entity-wide disclosures about like where the business operates, so geographical areas. Um, so both from a revenue perspective as well as where certain like long live type assets are maybe held. So if you know you've got stuff that's located in the US, but then you've also got stuff in foreign territories, you know, you have to kind of break that down and provide that information. And then the last one is around just like their major customers. So just trying to understand like are there any single customers that exceed 10%? of an entity's revenues, you kind of have to disclose how many of those customers there are, what percentage it kind of makes up. You know, you don't have to give the customer's name, so don't don't panic about that. <laughs> um, but you do need to give some insight if there's any kind of like concentration around major customers that needs to be put into there as well. Does the company's disaggregated revenue disclosure under 606 need to match these disclosures for their products and services and geography? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's one that comes up because that was a new requirement introduced mm -hmm. by 606 is that you kind of have to do those disaggregated revenue disclosures. And so the answer is no, it doesn't have to match it. It could, but there could also be differences. And some of the reasons you might have differences um, would be around like just the aggregation criteria. So the ability to aggregate things under um, the segment reporting disclosure, you know, doesn't exist under 606. So there could be differences. However, if you know the disaggregation between what would be disaggregated under you know 280 versus 606 are the same, you don't have to do it twice. So, like if you're going to put it in your segment reporting disclosures, you could probably eliminate it from your revenue footnotes. We like that. Must work. <laughs> Does a company's segment reporting often raise comments from the SEC, and what are some of the common issues that they raise? Yeah, it does. It is, you know, it's one of the areas the SEC for sure weighs on, um, especially for like initial registrants. So people going through an IPO or potentially a SPAC type transaction, they're going to they're going to hone in on this, particularly if you're, you know, an entity that determined we've got one reportable segment, they may question how you actually came to that conclusion. So you know, some of the things they may even ask for is just like what information or provide us the information that was used um, to make this conclusion that the CODM reviews to make sure that, hey, does this actually hold up with what actually is is used by that that 
person or that in, or that group of people. But other like common SEC comments is just like, how was even the CODM determined? Like, how did you, you know, did you default the CEO, but is he really the one that's really determining like how resources get allocated? So just trying to understand some of that. Um, if there's a lot of aggregation happening, you know, aggregation is kind of meant to be a little bit of a higher bar. Um, trying to understand like, does aggregation make sense? How was that conclusion made? Um, and then probably one of the bigger ones is just where there's inconsistency. So like, you know, in MDNA, all of a sudden you're talking about different aspects of the business, but that's not really, you know, filtered down into what's actually in the reportable segments. They may question like, well, how is, it sounds like management's having discussions around different aspects of the business, but this obviously didn't make it into your, your segment reporting. So trying to reconcile that or, Maybe on an earnings call or a press release, you start talking about different aspects of the business that don't seem to like provide transparency in the segment mm -hmm. reporting. Um, they may question like how, you know, reconcile this for me because we're, we're not seeing this here, but all of a sudden you're now talking about different aspects of the business. Um, so those are probably the more common ones. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if you are a company going through that, you know, I, I guess I should say, don't be shocked if you actually get a comment on yeah. that yeah. Um, because it is an area that they do tend to, push back and try to understand, um, especially if you think about a private company, right? They haven't been through this before and maybe it's their first time. They're trying to make sure that they're providing that transparency. And so, you know, questions inherently just get asked. And I think one of the things that we often see with companies going through that process is they'll proactively, you know, memorialize, go through all this guidance and understand, you know, why did, why were certain conclusions reached? So that way, if the SEC has questions during that pre-IPO process, you're able to more quickly respond to them because you've already thought through the questions that, that might ask. So something we see a lot of companies do is they're getting ready to be public. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely best practice to just start, you know, thinking about that if you're heading down that path. Which is a great segue into the last question. We've hooked them from the beginning. <laughs> we made a promise. If they've made it this far, they deserve to know, how does this apply to private companies? We've laid out the framework. What do they need to keep in mind from all of this? Yeah, so we, we did like kind of hint at it. So if you are a private company, um, you do have goodwill on your books. You aren't amortizing that goodwill. You, you know, obviously you know that you have to test that goodwill for impairment on an annual basis or, you know, more than an annual basis if there's a trigger. And so goodwill is tested at the reporting unit level, which is defined as an, as an operating segment mm -hmm. or one level below an operating segment. So. The identification of reporting units actually goes through the same like 280 framework. So it's going back to that, you know, the CODM regularly reviews, discrete financial information is available, you know, meets the objectives and principles of 280. So it's walking through that similar guidance um, to identify those reporting units. Obviously, reporting units could then go a step further and be broken down within that operating segment. But obviously, you know, that's facts and circumstances based depending on the company, but it is the same framework. So, you know, you know, a lot of this guidance, as far as what gets into the financial statements, obviously not relevant for private companies, but just the kind of the thought process and coming up with who, um, you know, who our reporting units are related to goodwill, you are going to, you know, essentially apply a very similar framework. All right. Well, I think we've done a thorough overview, which I think is an oxymoron, but that's what we've done. Um, as always, there's so much more we could cover on this topic, but we hope this was a great starting point for all of our listeners. Um, as you continue learning and digging into this topic, we'd love to 
support you. So reach out to us on LinkedIn, share your thoughts on future podcast topics. Um, thank you, Adam and Jason, for joining today. Sure. And we hope you found this discussion helpful and look forward to having you join us again on Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.